At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 428th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who is building an urban farm dream. We're talking with Chad Chase about urban farming as a business Chad is the co-owner of Urban Grounds Coffee Company, a full-service coffee shop on wheels, sourcing ethical, natural, local, and wholesome products and ingredients. He is also the co-owner and operator of Arendale Farms, a two-acre farm in northwest Phoenix that focuses on various fruit trees, field crops, and chicken eggs. They currently sell farm-fresh eggs at the Phoenix Public Market and the Ahwatukee Farmer's Market, and in the coming months, we'll be adding fresh fruit and vegetables as well. Welcome to the show today, Chad. Are you ready to rock your urban farm? Let's do it. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Yeah, so me and my husband, Anthony, we used to live in Levine, Mm -hmm. and it all started with just two chickens. We had two hens down there and just really enjoyed them and their personalities. And we decided to look for a larger property. Mm -hmm. Uh, We found one in Northwest Phoenix. And after that, I just took off from there. Uh, We always say that chickens were the gateway animal for us. (laughs) Absolutely. And so now on our farm, yeah, so now on our farm, we have emus, alpacas, goats, ducks, uh, and then the main thing that we have our our chickens. So we raise them to produce eggs and then sell them at the local farmer's markets, uh, like you had just said. Mm-hmm. Wow. So there was a time when you weren't farming and making a living at it. What were you doing? I actually grew up in Iowa. And so I, I lived around farms pretty much my whole life, but I was never a farmer. Mm-hmm. And I went to school. So I started off with a certificate of entrepreneurship because I just always loved the business aspect of life. And after that, my grandmother had passed away in 2009, uh, which was a huge thing for me in my life. And I transitioned kind of to a place where I wanted to help others through that difficult time, too. So I went to school for mortuary science back there. And then I worked in the funeral industry for about three years, uh, maybe almost four. Mm-hmm. And then when I moved down here to Phoenix, I ended up finishing up my bachelor's degree in public administration. So for the last five years, I have been working or I had been working for the Department of Public Health for Maricopa County. And so then with that, kind of pivoted from all of that stuff to the farming aspect as a hobby. And then it just kind of grew into this thing where we thought, you know, what we really want to do is run this as a business uh, to hopefully someday fund a foundation that kind of is geared towards 
farm to school and able to fund school lunch programs in the Valley. So that's kind of a long-term goal and why we, we got into farming. Wow. Well, I love that you have this long-term vision. I am a big, big believer. If you're not planning out a hundred years, you're not thinking big enough. And so yeah, yeah. I, I always love it when people have their eye on a, on a future farther out than three months, you know? Yeah. And, and for us too, I mean, you know, I, I grew up, my grandmother was very important to me. I mean, she is the reason why my career had pivoted the first time and uh, kind of what has been the underlying uh, notion of, of this foundation of giving back to a community. She was a very socially aware individual and believed heavily in making sure that those who are the most underserved in our community are lifted up. And Anthony and I both feel that hungry children don't learn and malnourished children don't learn well. Yes. And But that does result in a, an economy that we can't retire in. And so it's just as important for us to invest in them as it is to invest in our 401k. Yeah, exactly. So you're actually raising food. You've got alpacas. What do you do with alpacas? Yeah, so we really love alpacas. I mean, their personalities are wonderful. We shear them every spring. We've collected the fiber. We haven't done anything with the fiber yet. It's all in bags and we just have not found a market for it yet. I know there, it's out there. I know people knit with uh, alpaca fiber. We just haven't gotten there. So what we do is, oddly enough, they like to poop in uh, one place, kind of like cats or, uh-huh. uh, yeah. And so it's really easy to collect the poop. And the poop is really good and nutritious for our compost pile. Oh, yes. And so we collect it and, and compost it. So that's their main objective here on the farm. Mm-hmm. And other pl- other animals that you have? Yeah, so the goats, the goats, I had gotten Anthony for his birthday the first year that we had the farm. We had really no other animals uh, besides two cats and two dogs. And so I thought, well, we need to try, you know, some larger mammal that we can raise. Mm-hmm. So I bought him goats. And, and so that's why we have those. They don't really produce anything, but they definitely keep the weeds down. Oh, yes. they do. So in, in, from that perspective, they're really valuable. Yeah, for sure. They eat pretty much anything. Yeah. Well, and they're they're harvesting the weeds and the pretty much everything and turning it into again manure for your compost pile, right? Exactly. Yep. There's a little bit harder because they will they don't go in nice piles like the alpacas. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and then you have chickens. And how many chickens do you have? Laying hens. Um, we we have a large number of hens for our area. It's kind of interesting because obviously you have city ordinance and you have state laws, and you really figure out how to navigate those things. So we have oh, yes. land lease agreements with one of our neighbors so that we are above the two and a half acre requirement for the city uh, to have more than 20 hens per half acre. Oh. It's very strange. Yeah, the, the ordinance says that you can have 20 hens per half acre up to two and a half acres. And then once you're over that, it's unlimited. So we had kind of circumvented it by leasing having a land lease agreement with one of our neighbors. And then that puts us just over the two and a half uh, acres. And so we have about 400 laying hens and that's anywhere from chicks to, to actually laying. Right. And we also, it kind of segues into something that we have taken to heart and that's making sure that your neighbors are aware of what you're doing and, you know, talking to them. And we have had those conversations where, you know, chickens produce a lot of poop. We make sure that we are cleaning their pens constantly, adding uh, wood chips. And so we have told all of them, you know, if you have any issues, 
know, please come to us and, you know, we will take care of it or solve the problem, you know, between us and, and making sure that we're cleaning up things. If there's a certain smell, we, you know, take care of that as well. So just staying in contact and communication. It's really interesting. All of our neighbors really, really love us and yeah, we love them. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and that doing that ahead of time work, I did that here at the urban farm. Uh, 20 years ago when I started calling this the urban farm and opening it up publicly, I just was really straightforward with my neighbors. I told them what I was up to. I worked with them. I, you know, I shared eggs with them and shared fruit with them and it makes all the difference in the world. And now they're all enrolled and wow, we got the urban farm on our street. And I suspect you live in the same kind of a neighborhood. Yeah. So we are in Sunburst Farms in Northwest Phoenix. And this is such a unique area. We we were always designated as agricultural lifestyle in an urban setting. Mm. And that's been all the way back since the inception of Sunburst Farms, mm -hmm. which uh, started in about 1969. Wow. So you have a farming history on the land that you now tend to. Tell me about that, because I know there were some fun things that happened back then when you, when they first started Sunburst Farms. Yeah, so we have a private irrigation district, which we pump water from a well here on two pieces of property that the district owns. And very few areas in the valley can actually say that. Most flood irrigated properties are receiving water from canals. Yeah. And ours is actually coming from wells. So back then when the irrigation district was established, there was also another association. I, I believe at first they were together and then they were divided at one point in time. But the other side of the association, you could actually join and rent and lease equipment to farm your property. The interesting part is it went even further to where you could actually hire somebody from the association to come out and teach you how to plant and grow field crops. Wow, really? Yeah, it, it was crazy. I mean, for 1969, it was very much ahead of its time. Uh -huh. That was very forward thinking. Yeah. And, you know, the the history of this property actually goes beyond 1969. It was a huge farm uh, before it was home. And we are still using the original farm irrigation system that was put in place back then. So I actually, I used to run a, a booth at a farmer's market 20 years ago when I was in college. That was one of the ways that I made made my way through college. And what I remember was there was this this wall that I had to get past about oh my gosh, how do I get into a farmer's market? And once I got past it, it was like, oh my gosh, that was simple. Have you have you found the same thing? Yeah, I, I we've experienced exactly this. Um, you know, we, we would go to farmer's markets and we would kind of explore as a customer and, and really see it through the customer's eyes. And yeah, it was like, how do you get in here and how do you start selling? And, you know, you see a lot of competition and it kind of makes you worry. For us, we started using a program that is at both, Phoenix Public Market and Uptown Farmers Market. And I think there are a few other high street farmers markets are at as well, but it's called the Community Exchange Table. Oh, yes. And yeah, and it is such a great organization. Chip is the director of it. And then we have a few, few table managers, some that work at Phoenix Public Market and some that work at Uptown. Obviously, they're running at the same time, so they're not the same person. But it was a quick, easy way to get our product at the farmers market and to really test out what people want and how it should be packaged. And that's how we kind of started. So that, that was your gateway in. And the community exchange table, it's just, it's just a table that you can bring stuff to. 
and then the table markets it for you and then they pay you for it? Is that how it works? Yeah. So you just bring your produce to the market in the morning, stop by the table, drop it off. You tell them what price you want for the products that you bring. And some things you have to weigh out. So for example, you might say you want 50 cents per orange, but Mm -hmm. then you have radishes and you want to sell them per bunches. So you want to make sure they're in a bunch and then you have a price for it. And then what happens is at the end of the month, uh, you'll receive a check for the amount that you sold minus 20%. And that 20% goes to the market fees as well as the administrative costs for the booth managers and other administrative fees. Cool. And then you've stepped past that and you actually have your own booth now. So we actually are still using the community exchange table down at Phoenix Public Market Mm -hmm. because we have just recently started planting field crops. And that has been kind of an experience for us that has been a huge struggle. You know, we planted stuff and then it died because we ran out of time during the day doing everything else. We've taken some things from our fruit trees and uh, tried selling them there and we've done really well. So now uh, as of this fall, we have wholeheartedly invested time, energy, and money into our uh, crop field. And so we'll be having a large abundance of produce. And so we're going to open our first booth probably up at the high street market to kind of give us a idea of how it should look and how it should function. Mm-hmm. Right now we do have a booth, our own booth down in Ahwatukee that we operate. And that is kind of a, a conglomerate of both of our coffee company and our eggs. Perfect. I was going to ask you if you have your coffee cart at the farmer's markets. It seems like it might be a perfect place for it, especially on a cold morning. Yeah. So we have a, a fully built out trailer, which is a coffee shop on wheels and take it down to Phoenix Public Market on Saturday morning, and then we take it to High Street Farmer's Market on Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. And it's super busy, so that's why we really haven't branched off into our own uh, booth, but that is the direction we're heading in right now. Nice. When I I found that once I really got past the, oh my gosh, what's it take to get into a market, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, Can you review that process that you went through? Yeah, so... Each market manager operates things a little bit differently. For example, there's some market managers that believe that a market should be really diverse and there should be competition. We prefer those markets. We love when there's competition around. And the reason being is because we want people to come to the farmer's market uh, with the mindset of grocery shopping, Mm. not the mindset of I'm looking for that one craft, right? Because they're only going to spend money on one thing and they're not going to be buying groceries. If you go to the farmer's market with the mindset of, of a grocery shopper, you are there to buy things that you're going to consume that week and then hopefully come back the next week and buy things again that you're going to consume the next week. And that's the type of shopper that we want to continue to filter into the farmer's market to make them successful. Right. And, and with that being said, you know we've been very cognizant about that aspect of it. If we all of a sudden, for example, when hens go through molting, the egg production drops quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And as we get closer to the winter solstice, where the daylight is at its very least amount in the northern hemisphere, hens, produ- hens egg production slows down the most out of the whole year. And so, so we supply about 80 dozen eggs a weekend in the summer to the Phoenix public market, whereas right now we are only supplying about 20. And So we want to make sure that there's competition at the market. So when we can't supply the needs of those grocery shopping minded individuals, Mm -hmm. there are others to fill in those gaps. 
And so I think it's just, it's better for the farmer's market. So you have that one camp where we want diversity and competition. And then you have another group where they really just want one producer of each product. And so we've struggled in those markets a little bit more, but we're learning how to adapt and, and to fill the needs of the customers at those markets as well. So jumping into it, you kind of look at what markets are available and how managers want you to present yourself. And so we've been working with both of them, trying to figure out how to get the vegetables there and then making sure that we're diversified enough to meet the needs of our customers. Yeah, perfect. And then then, then there's just a form to fill out usually at the farmer's market. So we just pick up application from the market manager and then fill it out. Some markets will have an application fee. And then after that, it's just a percentage of your sales. And each market has a different percentage that they have allocated for either farmers or crafters. Uh, So you want to check that out to make sure that it's uh, feasible for your farm. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, it's really super simple to get into a market. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think we put more fear as a wall from us entering a market than is even necessary. It is really simple. Mm Mm-hmm. Cool. So what's the future of your little adventure there? Big adventure, because actually two and a half plus acres, in my opinion, is a big adventure. Yeah. So uh, it's funny because a lot of people ask us about our farm name and they're like, well, why does it farms when you just have one? And I said, because I'm thinking about the future. We won't just have one. (laughs) So we would like to expand to four acres eventually uh, if the opportunity arises. So we're kind of working towards that. Yeah, and we've looked you know, outside of the city possibly as our egg business continues to grow, and that comes with a whole different ball game. So we're trying to maximize what we have here and then kind of see where we go. And, and as our market share grows, uh, so will our farm. Nice. So one of the cool things that I always look for is people that actually have named farms. Why did you decide to name your farm and what's the what's the thought process behind Arendale Farms? Yeah, so Arendale is actually my husband's last name before we got married. Mm-hmm. And you know, we were down getting our marriage license back in Iowa and his mom was with us and we had lightly talked about what we wanted to do and I was in the impression that we were just going to keep our last names and you know not have to to deal with that but he filled out his section and he changed his last name and the look on his mom's face I thought she was going to fall over right then and there mm-hmm. <laughs> but so that's why we named our farm after his family because oh, nice we kind of wanted to keep it balanced and it it really is an awesome name I really really enjoy it and what was the impetus behind actually naming your farm what happened there Right. So I think, you know, as you're thinking about starting a farm or you're in the process of starting a farm, you want to have something that's marketable and that's unique. And so I think having that brand identity for us was really important. And so we went through this whole logo design. The colors that we chose represent certain things uh, like the green hopefully invokes a sense of freshness. The brown in our logo represents, you know, earthiness and natural aspects of what we grow. And then the the tractor is just a part of our heritage as far as, you know, me growing up in Iowa and mm-hmm. a lot of my family members work for John Deere. So beautiful. Well, good job, man. I I love it when people head in the direction of feeding our community. So high five to you. Thank you. Thanks. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. 
Yeah. So one thing that I had failed on is it all circles around trusting people. And and I just freely trust people. And I, I try to give people the benefit of the doubt. And when we started the process of planting field crops uh, the first time around, we found somebody to partner with to, to work for us and plant crops and weed the garden and harvest. And, you know, I put a lot of faith in them. And then they really took advantage of us and kind of ran off mm-hmm. with some of our equipment. And mm-hmm. it really hurt. And I, I really did feel like I failed because, you know, I thought, man, this was a person that I felt like the, the community that we were in trusted. And I, I kind of put that trust behind them, too. And I didn't reach out to anybody else. And I think that was the greatest failure. I didn't check with other people to see how trustworthy this person is mm-hmm. and how and how much we can believe in in that person in, in fulfilling their uh, obligations and being on your farm around your equipment around your animals and so i think that was my greatest failure yeah you know i've had woofers here the woofers for those of you out there that are listening that don't know what that means it's willing workers on organic farms and if you type in wwoof on on a search engine you'll come up with all kinds of resources about it. But one of the things that I always did with woofers here before they arrived is I always required three references and I always checked up on the references and I found it made a huge difference for me. So, you know, something to think about there. Yeah, that is definitely a uh, great tip. So how did you recover from that? I started looking around and just like you found some pretty good references for two people that again, are within the community that we operate in. So they work for the community exchange table on the weekends, and then they come over uh, during the weekday and uh, help us farm. No and they're, nice. they're, yeah, they're just two wonderful people. And, you know, they have a passion for growing. And, and that's really what we want to find for team members. We want to find people that have a passion for what they're doing and that we can give them the tools to really fulfill themselves and a part of our business strategy. Yeah. Cool. So what do you consider your biggest success? I think our biggest success is going where we haven't gone before and always asking the question, why? I think I drove the Arizona Department of Agriculture crazy (laughs) when we were changing license from nest run producer to a producer dealer license. Mm -hmm. And the reason being is, you know, you're making a huge huge jump from just collecting the eggs out of a nest and throwing them in a box and you know putting them on a table at a farmer's market to now we have to wash our eggs and we have to make sure that we are in compliance with USDA standards on both washing those eggs and our labeling requirements Mm -hmm. and then the refrigeration requirements that we have to fall under and so and then we are inspected quarterly by that department wow yeah yeah so it's a huge huge to do so as we went through that process, you know, again, it's kind of like entering the farmer's market. I felt like there was this huge wall there, but we continued to ask questions and planned ahead and really made sure that we were going to meet or exceed the requirements that the governing agencies had set forth. Mm-hmm. Wow. So well, that, that must have been quite a process to go from nest run to producer. Can, can you tell me what does nest run mean and what does producer mean and how did you get there? Yeah, so nest-run eggs are just eggs that are taken uh, directly from the hen's nest, maybe lightly cleaned off with a paper towel or something, Mm -hmm. and then put into a box. The idea behind that is 
that the eggs should properly be washed by the individual that's purchasing them prior to uh, consumption. So eggs are porous, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you introduce cold water to them, the membrane inside the egg starts to shrink and it has the potential to pull uh, contaminants and bacteria into the egg if you washed it with cold water. Now, if you wash it with water that's between 90 degrees and 120 degrees, the uh, membrane actually expands, giving you the opportunity to wash those contaminants away before the egg membrane shrinks. Wow. I didn't know yeah. all that. Good job. It's really interesting. And so we had to search all over the place for a, an egg washer that uh, had both a washing part of the system and then a sanitizing part of the system, and it had to run at at or, or above 90 degrees and had to have U, special USDA brushes in it. So we found a family out of Texas that actually built our machine, and they do such a wonderful job building these things and at such a reasonable price. The system that we bought was probably around like $6,000 where some of these larger companies out of the Midwest, I mean, mm -hmm. you're talking like 30000 upwards to 50000 Yeah. And how many dozen eggs are you selling a week? In the summer at our, our peak, we were probably around 80 dozen. Wow. Uh, well, I should say 80 dozen at the farmer's market, but we also wholesale to a bread company called Proof, who is also at the farmer's market. Oh, nice. Yeah, so they would take our runoff, and they were probably getting like 40 dozen a week, sorry, 40 dozen a month. So we're probably somewhere around you know, 130 dozen eggs. Wow, that's a lot of eggs. It is. If you uh, visit our Facebook page, we post pictures of us cleaning eggs all the time, and they're just this huge table full of multicolored eggs. It's pretty cool. It's a process. Wow. So what drives you? That's a good question. Some days I wonder. Uh, you know, living on your farm is something interesting. You wake up and you think, eh, if I don't open the curtain, maybe it doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> right. Because all the work can be very overwhelming. And so you do have to have a, a certain level of drive. But I think having that plan, having that end goal, and knowing that you can make a difference in your community, both on a, a health aspect as well as feeding people. You know, it's it really, I think, is the pinnacle of what drives both Anthony and I. Mm -hmm. Wow, cool. So if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? Yeah, so one of my favorite books is called Raving Fans. Mm -hmm. And it is by uh, Ken Blanchard and Sheldon Bowles. And the idea behind this book is all about customer service and how you change just mediocre customers into raving fans. So people are going to talk about you to their friends. People are going to share the content that you put out on social media. Mm -hmm. And you know, a lot of it is hypothetical in nature in the book, but they always draw it back to real world concepts. And so as we've developed our businesses, this has been a book that we've shared with uh, our team members so that they can understand how we want to approach customer interactions and product development. So you're really running this like a business. This, oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's where your entrepreneurship background comes in at, huh? Yep. Yeah, we want it to be successful because ultimately we want to create a foundation that supports farm to school education and school nutrition programs. And so in order to do that, uh, we want our companies to be successful so that it can fund that foundation independently. Uh, there's a lot of companies out there that disguise themselves as nonprofits, you know, and they're and they're 
reaching out to collect funds to really raise their capital so that they can grow their business. We wanted to do it a different way. We wanted to invest in our companies, make sure they're successful, and that those companies are donating to that foundation. Yeah. Awesome. Good job. Thanks. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? You know, I, I hate to s- steal other people's taglines, but just do it. Get out there, get your hands dirty, ask the questions that need to be asked. And, and there's no shame in that. There is no shame in not knowing. There's no shame in failing. You always have to kind of fail forward to make sure that you are growing as an individual and uh, hopefully you can feed your community. Yeah. Wow. Beautiful. Beautiful one. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Chad. I really appreciate this opportunity, Greg. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? Yeah. So you can find us through our website, which is www.arendalefarms.com or on social media. Both our handles on Instagram and Facebook are Arendelle Farms. And I'm going to spell Arendelle for you because it's kind of tricky. Perfect. It's A-R-R-A-N-D-A-L-E. And then farms. Perfect. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash Arendale. We are your urban farming resource. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and every place that podcasts are served. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.